Hello and welcome to the Undead Wookiee podcast. The Undead Wookiee is a fortnightly-ish podcast focusing on horror and sci-fi, but there will be times where we dip into other genres because here at the Undead Wookiee, our nerdiness knows no bounds. Hello and welcome back. Got a fantastic episode lined up for you. On this episode, I'm going to be sitting down and chatting with an indie filmmaker, uh, writer, director, producer, sometime actor, you know, once upon a time a hip-hop artist, uh, Mr. Terry Cooper. So I am very, very excited to be sitting down with him. So without further ado, I'm going to shut up and we're going to dive right in. I hope you enjoy. And we are back, ladies and gentlemen. Take two. <laughs> The Gremlins are playing up on this one. Now, I am joined on this episode by the very patient, the very talented actor, writer, director, and just all-round great guy. And uh, we are... are, The the internet gods are against us on this one, (laughs) unfortunately, for whatever reason. But, ladies and gentlemen, give it up again for the fabulous, the wonderful... Mr. Terry Cooper. Terry, how are you, my man? <laughs> Hello, I'm I'm uh, I'm like you, one of the front lines against the technology, and uh, yeah, trying to make it work. I yeah. think the uh, I think there's something for being a luddite at times. This <laughs> it must be, it must be everyone must be using Skype on a Sunday or something. I th- I think everybody has just jumped on at this exact same time. Um, <laughs> yes, as you can probably gather, ladies and gentlemen, we've had a few technical issues. Um, but you know, we've been chatting away and, um, one of the things that we've just sort of hit on is already about our, you know, our love of good character actors. Um, and we were just saying about sort of, obviously talking about sort of certain, certain actors in their, um, in their younger days willing to take chances. Um, we mentioned sort of Robert Downey Jr. and sort of like before Iron Man and one of my favorite, uh, moments, uh, one of his favorite films for me is, is Natural Born Killers. His performance in Natural Born Killers is is off the charts. Do you know? I forgot he was in that. Oh, he is phenomenal. He's absolutely mental. That's probably it, though. That's probably it because, um, you know, if I think of Robert Downey Jr., I do think of uh, Chaplin and Weird Science and things yeah. like that. But, but again, if he was not doing the Robert Downey Jr. Tree, TM trademark thing, yeah. Um, I my brain has just forgotten that that was Robert Downey Jr. in Natural Born Killers because it's it, you know he plays a really sleazy um, newspaper reporter, right? Um, and he's just absolutely phenomenal in it. And he's there at the end with the uh, or, or television reporter, um, and it's very yeah. much a commentary on like Springer that kind of thing. And hmm. um, one of the things that I love about Natural Born Killers is people sort of. When it came out, everybody went bonkers, and you know, well, I say everybody, that certain members of the press um, yeah. jumped on the bandwagon saying how awful it is. But it's such a layered and clever film, and all of us don't. Yeah. I don't think gets enough credit for that. Um, I think I think real life was um, was influencing the press's, uh, you know, attention to Robert Downey Jr. at the time without seeing, you know, what he was actually doing. They're like, oh, he's clearly off off the. Uh, off the wall with this uh, in real life so he's it's informing his uh... yeah so i mean he is you know he makes he makes a number of choices uh, acting choices sort of um, i think now based on just being is he able to be himself and 
continue with the well, Marvel I think, brand. I think he does now. Yeah, he 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 does his he does because you know compared his natural born killers performance then to something like Zodiac, oh. uh, where he's also with Mark Ruffalo. He's playing a a, a news reporter, but he, he's doing it as Tony Stark basically. Yeah. So yeah, you know, um, unless he's putting an accent on, or like I say, if he's unless he's blacked up as he was in Tropic Thunder, but or putting an accent on like Sherlock Holmes, he's just he's just doing himself, you know, which isn't a bad thing because I, I like him as an actor. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, obviously, one of the things you got going on at the moment, amongst everything else, yep. is you've got a Kickstarter that's running at the moment. In Dude ID. Yes. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what's going on there? Alrighty. So um, uh, for the last year, I've been writing my second feature film. Um, and we've been putting some money aside and savings and everything else. And we thought, well, we still need more because this film is called bloody students. And it's, as it says on a tin, it's a comedy horror, much in the mold of Shaun of the dead. And, um, it's slightly more ambitious and therefore slightly more expensive than the original film Offworld, which was a sci-fi thriller of, uh, people outdoors walking miles and miles and arguing and fighting with each other. Um, so we thought, let's go back to Kickstarter. We did quite well with Offworld. Uh, we only wanted to raise £2,000. And then we ended up raising 10000 which made us think, let's go mental and try and film a feature. And it worked. Wow. Um, now, with this film, um, it's a feature from the beginning. So we've set a goal, which is probably a bit too ambitious, um, of £10,000, which is basically the amount we raised on the last film. Uh, this uh, is I'm wondering if this was a little bit too ambitious because obviously back in 2016 there wasn't a cost of living crisis and uh, people were more willing to you know put their investment into something that was uh, you know reasonably uh, appealing to them so um, at the moment we're noticing that uh, there's a slight relux reluctance we're not doing terribly badly we're at we're on day seven and we're at 13 percent so it's 1300 pounds exactly um the one of the things i've noticed is that nowadays kickstarter do not support paypal um and that i think has made life a little bit more difficult for people who just want to donate via paypal so um we've had to set up a paypal link as well this is this is fiddly man it's like yeah right, so yeah people can put their card details in because uh, Kickstarter now uses Stripe. Um, but if anyone wants to use PayPal, they have to PayPal the production company for my film, uh, which is the Dog Bloke Media Limited. It's not my company. It's my producer's company. And he's got to then make a list and a note of their donation plus the rewards they're entitled to on Kickstarter. Uh, by the way, Kickstarter takes out 2% of everything that comes in as well. Yeah, so, I mean, and, that's... That's something that it's people so greedy people don't that people really don't don't see, um, no. and you know we 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 spoke a little bit before um, about this, is that you know Kickstarters, GoFundMe, Indiegogo, they are really they're fantastic tools, particularly for independent filmmakers, but they take a chunk. They do, yeah. Um, with Kickstarter, it's ten percent. Um, but it, and, and we noticed with, with the PayPal. So when you do uh, PayPal, we did a crowdfund, not a crowdfunder. We did a, a, a fundraising sort of thing in August last year, just via, via PayPal. And when someone would send me twenty pounds, 
I'd get £19.12. Um, you know, so in order to make it up to the full amount, the rest of the, you know, the, the fee that PayPal had taken out comes out of my pocket. And um, it's all right in small amounts, but obviously with a big crowdfunder, if you get a lot, if we get a lot of people paying via PayPal, yeah. PayPal take their fee. Then we've got to put that money from PayPal into the Kickstarter to bump the um, the goal up so people can see that the payments are going into the Kickstarter. And at the end of it all, if we hit the target, Kickstarter will still take their 10%. It's, I mean, like I said, it's a great tool and lots of really, really interesting, ambitious projects wouldn't, oh, yeah. have, wouldn't have got made or got off the ground. Um, yeah, yeah. W- without these sort of, you know, these crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, you know, crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, sort of, uh, but they still take their, 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 their pound of flesh. They do, yeah. Um, and, and the one thing that's um, become apparent to me over the last couple of years uh, is there are some people, including friends of mine, who don't understand how crowdfunding works. Yeah. Um, there are some, I, I you know I've got friends who say, well, I'm not going to put any money into your film and i say why and they go i don't believe in crowdfunding <laughs> okay um but you'd buy me a coffee wouldn't you you'd buy me a pint anyway so what i mean by that <coughs> excuse me what i mean by that is that some people think that if they put money into a kickstarter for a film or a product product or a video game and have a quick swig of water before i die that's okay <laughs> Yeah, please don't die on air. (laughs) I had dinner about five minutes ago, and it's still trying to come back. Um, Sorry, yeah. So people put money into a Kickstarter or a video game or a product or whatever, and firstly they think that they're entitled to own the product, which they're not. Mm. It's it's basically somebody wants to do something, and they need help from other people to pay for it. It doesn't mean you have a slice of that thing. I've put lots of... um, I've I've currently supported 26 different uh, Kickstarters and everything from small items to comic books to uh, video games, you know, gadgets. And I don't I don't feel I own a slice of whatever I've invested in. No, no. Um, Another thing was um, a couple of years ago, somebody had a right go at me uh, via Instagram saying, look, I'm not being funny, but uh, give me my money back. I said, why? And they said, well, it's taken you, you know, over at, the, at that point, five years to, to get your film finished, mm. your first film. And I said, yeah, it has, but the film is still being finished. And they were like, well, I want my money back. And I said, well, if you look at Kickstarter, uh, that's, not an, that's not an option. It's like you put the money in at your own risk, and there's no guarantee, not just for me, for any project on uh, crowdfunders, Kickstarters, Indiegogos, there's no guarantee that you'll get the finished product, you know, or the product will be finished. Um, there was a story when Kickstarter first kicked off, there was a, uh, a space Marine movie called Legionnaires that came out mm. and it's notorious. It's almost an urban myth now, but basically the Legionnaires thing raised like millions. And even I put like 20 quid into it thinking, oh, I really want to see this. And it, it either failed or it disappeared without trace. I can't remember, but nobody got their money back and everyone was like, Oh, do you remember the Legionnaires thing that never happened? You know, and and these things do happen. Um, And unlike a lot of crowdfunded uh, ventures, our film Offworld 
has been made. Uh, it all right. It took seven years in post production. We ran out of money. We ran out of people. We ran out of time. The lockdown happened. Studios got closed. We you know we passed it around. We you know we made friends and lost friends. All this kinds of things happened. Um, but two weeks ago, we posted it on a hard drive with um, a Dropbox full of 87 pages worth of submission materials and every contract going and every bit of graphics and sound and subtitles to a U.S. distributor who had been interested in the film from day one. Mm. So it's out there. It's done. Um, and people will get to see it at some point. You know, and we're going to do our best to try and make sure the backers who put money into Offworld all that you know many years ago will get to see it first. And a couple have already have, and they think it's okay. So, do you know what? And people don't, you know, and you know, I've, I, I, I completely get exactly where you're coming from. Sort of, I don't think people take into account sort of just that filmmakers want to make their films and they want to get their films released. Yeah, big, small, medium, in between, micro, but whatever. But we, everybody, you know, I'd like to think, and this is probably me being very naive, that the the vast majority of people always set up with the best intentions to do this stuff. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes things take a lot longer than originally thought. Well, there you go. You know, Offworld took we shot it in six days, and that was seven years ago, and only now it's just finished. Um, because life gets in the way, money runs out, and for all the people, I mean, there have been people who have anonymously attacked me online and stuff over the years and said, you're a con man, you've taken everyone's money. I'm like, if I was a con man, do you think I'd be updating people for seven years, telling them that the film's on the way and sharing clips and doing talks and other podcasts and stuff like that, when I could have just disappeared, changed all my social media and just walked off of the money, but... I haven't. I haven't got. I haven't had a penny to myself out of Offworld's Kickstarter. No, and, and, it all went to the cast and crew. And people forget that you know, it, filmmaking is not is is not cheap. No, absolutely not. I it mean, is not cheap. The only way we managed to get Offworld shot was the production uh, people, which was myself and Chris Bevan and Danny Britton. We're the producers. Uh, we decided to take no money. The actors all decided to work for free, but the only people we paid were the crew. Yeah. Um, so basically, you know, um, a DOP might cost you two grand. Uh, someone to do editing might cost two grand. And, you know, all that money disappears. And when you say to someone, oh, yeah, well, we raised 10 grand on Kickstarter, everyone thinks, oh, so you put £10,000 in your pocket. I'm like, no. Yeah. It got split up over many, many different things. You know, B&B, petrol money catering for a 25 strong crew paying some um uh, students to do special effects and makeup it's like it's so much that goes out and you've got none left well you and, know? and and here's the other thing as well yeah like people forget about little things that are important when it comes to filmmaking and yeah. one of the most important things is feeding your cast and crew yeah you yeah. can't sort of not feed people people now, get if if you're not if you don't feed them, it's almost like that's the least you can do, you know? Yes. Um, people, if they're going to give up their time for like, you know, very long days because a two-second scene doesn't take two seconds to film. It'll take like two hours. Yeah. So, oh. yeah. And um, the very least you can do is feed them. And if they don't get fed or if they don't feel like they've got a full stomach or they've had something to drink or a coffee to keep them going or whatever, people get grumpy and they get tired, you know? So you've got to, yeah. you know, do you know, what and, you can to look after them. And... 
it's hardly you know people think about the you know we talked you were saying about sort of your fantastic story about sort of uh, getting holding an umbrella over yeah. Bob Hoskins yeah you yeah. know whilst he's drinking coffee from a polystyrene cup now you know yeah. Bob Hoskins is you know Roger who framed Roger Rabbit yeah um, the Long Good Friday yeah dare I say Super Mario Brothers <laughs> um, <laughs> you know and countless other major films big star. Stood in yeah. the rain with a polystyrene cup of coffee. Yep. Down in Panath, um, down and uh, a rundown old uh, block of flats called the Billy Banks, which is no longer there anymore. Oh, and the good old Billy Banks. Yeah. The film was called Outlaw, and it's still out on DVD. Um, and it was a Sean Bean movie, and um, I was playing an extra. I was a, basically a copper, and it was a murder scene. And I was uh, holding the crowds back, etc. So from when they when they yelled action, I jump out the car start pushing people back and walk past Bob Hoskins. And um, it wasn't Sean Bean was there, wasn't there on the day. It was him and someone else. And they were discussing the crime scene. And then, you know, in between scenes, the rain started hammering down. And I jumped in the car. To, they said, oh, you know, don't get wet. Get in the car. Stay dry. So I'm looking in the car. I look outside. And about 10, 15 feet away from me is Bob Hoskins on his own trying to drink coffee uh, out of a polystyrene cup. And the rain's dripping into his cup. And no one is, like, paying him any attention. And I'm like, right, well, you know, I, I got out of the car, grabbed an umbrella off somebody and stood over Bob. I said, uh, I thought you might need an umbrella. He goes, ah, thanks very much. And, um, you know, we had, a, we had a brief chat. He said, oh, how long have you been doing this thing? And I said, yeah, I, I'm only local. I'm an extra. You know, I've been doing this about a year. And he was, he was having a nice chat. And I looked around and I noticed there was, you know, first ADs and second ADs all sort of looking at me as if to say, how dare you? You've just gone and broken the rule, which is extras should not talk to the talent. And I'm like, well, you were going to let him catch pneumonia. So, you know, what the hell? <laughs> yes. I mean, talking of outlaw, that's got a hell of a cast. Um, well, do you know what? I've I've seen bits of it. I've never seen it all. It's, and it's, I really it's, should. it's OK. It's pretty good, actually. It's, it's yeah. pretty good. Well, obviously, you know, the, the aforementioned Sean Bean. Um, yeah, I think the storyline is that he Sean Bean comes back from serving abroad or something yeah he come, I think he's a, basically he's a veteran of some sort yeah feels a bit and they set up like a vigilante kind of um yeah kind of thing going i mean it's got you know sean bean is in it danny dyer is in it danny dyer um, that's right yeah. um oh sean harris is in it okay. um, great character actor uh sean harris really really red hair really piercing eyes um yeah lenny james Wow, Lenny James as well. Yeah, it's really, really, really you know, good, solid cast. Really good cast. I think it kind of gets it, it sort of kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. Okay, but it's a, it's it's well worth it's well worth a look. So I occasionally browsing the uh, charity shops and I see the DVD on the shelf and I go, oh, I was in that, but I haven't actually bought it to uh, you know to see that. Uh, the movie from start to finish, I think it would probably feel a bit weird watching it, knowing I was in one, you know, five I second scene. I have major issues watching anything that I've ever been in. <laughs> as, as, yeah. as few and far, I have major, major issues watching it. Um, way back in the midst of time, I did a pilot um, for a TV series called uh, a science fiction TV series. Ooh. Um, that got sold to me as a, uh, a cross between Twin Town and Red Dwarf. Um, okay. With a bit of Star Wars thrown in there. Blimey, that sounds good. Uh, well, sounds that's fun. what I thought. That's what I thought. It was, you know, <laughs> I was young, dumb and full of excitement at the time. So, you know, yeah. I, I arrive up at uh, good old uh, 
HTV Studios up in Cardiff. Okay. And uh, yeah, uh, essentially, I was playing there uh, the sidekick to the hero. Um, right. And it was a lot of fun. But I remember, you know, you know, and it sort of never really saw the light of day. I think it got chopped up. Um, oh, right. And ended up being part of a shotgun slideshow. Remember that? There we go. It, it ended up being aired on there at about three o'clock right. in the morning. Oh, blimey. Yeah. Um, and I remember sitting there watching it and just thinking, oh, my God. So it, it kind of failed in the execution then or something. It wasn't. Um, I, do you know what? It was pretty, It was okay. I'm, yeah. I was, I remember just me watching it from the point of view. I mean, I'm very, you know, I'm, you know, I, 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 I think I was, you know, obviously hypercritical, but I remember sort of just sitting there, just dying watching myself <laughs> on screen. Yeah, um, you can't watch anything else. You can't even take it in context. You're like, oh my goodness, that's yeah. just me, you know. And like people say, you know, it's separated. It's like, no, no, that's me, that's me. No, see that, see that, that's where I nearly fell over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. What, Everything you've done wrong, and you'll remember the exact take as well. Oh God, yeah. And there was a there was you know this one action moment where I had to kick a door open, and sort of <laughs> burst into the room, sort of uh, you know blasters blazing away. And um, I remember kicking the door, and the door hit the wall, swinging back and cracking me right in the face. So... Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the kind of stuff that would happen. Yeah. You know, it's like the the moment in the Naked Gun. <laughs> OJ's character puts his foot through the door and tries to reach through the lock. Totally, yeah. yeah. Now, in terms of, you know, you spoke about Offworld, um, and obviously, and I, you know, just flicking through, I just realised, uh, Ross Hennessy. Um, yeah. Um, I trained. I used to train Krav Maga uh, ah, with yeah. Ross. Yeah. Um, and um, I injured his wife's foot on stage. Uh-oh. Yeah. Well. You know the size of Ross O'Hennessy. Yes, I and I've been on the receiving end of Ross Hennessy <laughs> in training as well. Like, lovely guy. Lovely, oh, yeah. lovely, oh, lovely guy. Well, the thing is, he couldn't do enough for us. I mean, in, in, a, in an age where if you're doing anything creative and you want someone to help you, nine times out of ten, people find it easier just to say no. Um, but Ross actually reached out to us. We were at a, a convention in Cardiff, and he saw what we were doing and he realized that uh, a friend of his, Amy Rowlands, who's an actress, she's in Offworld. And he said, he came over and said, oh, I know Amy. Uh, I said, yeah, she's one of the actors in this film. And he said, well, is there anything I can do to help? And I said, like, we can't afford you. And he's like, no, 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 don't worry about that. I was like, well, at the moment, there's no actual role for you. But how about we go away and write something? He's like, yeah, OK. I said, it'll probably be a voiceover. He's like, fine, no problem at all. So I wrote a voiceover. So he opens the film as the voice of the president of Earth talking about the pollution on Earth and the the drive to colonize a new planet 10 light years away. And he gives this big speech about, you know, the world is dying, but we have hope and we'll survive. And, um, you know, a couple of months later, he came down to a recording studio in Cardiff on a Saturday afternoon on, you know, his own time, his own petrol. Yeah. Uh, going back to what we talked about feeding your actors, I don't think we even offered him a cup of tea. Um, <laughs> But he did like 10 different takes of this speech and uh, he was brilliant, you know, um, really nice to meet him. So, yeah, he, he didn't even say, like, get my agent involved. He said, no, I'll come do it. You He's know, a great guy. He was Ross. well chuffed. Yeah, great guy. Yeah, um, I did. Um, I was in A View from the Bridge with his wife, Emma. OK. She's a fantastic right. actress. Fantastic. I was Eddie right. Carbone in uh, A View from the Bridge and she was playing oh, my wife. Cool. Um <laughs> And uh, there was we where I was supposed to like try and tip the table over in a in, right. in, in a fit of pique, 
Um, <laughs> and she sort of puts her hands on the table to stop. But obviously, being on stage, darling, and fully thespped up, the table went yeah. over, landed on her foot. Now, she Ooh. didn't flinch. Okay. She didn't. I didn't even know it had happened. Yeah. Until I got off stage. Um, yeah. And the my legendary, st- uh, you know, the legendary stage manager, uh, Olive, um, just started absolutely battering me with a copy of the script. <laughs> and uh, look what you've done to that poor bloody girl's foot. And oh the table God. had landed on her foot. She, had, she did the entire, the last 10, 15 minutes without, without any, I, you know, that anything was wrong. Uh, well, I think with theatre, it, it's even more a case of the show must go on because it's you know, generally live. And uh, um, I have never done theatre. Um, I had a near miss about a year or two ago. <laughs> I, um, I, uh, no, honestly, there was, um, I, I saw a lot of uh, people I know and actors and actresses getting into a um, a kind of new version of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which doesn't appeal to me. <laughs> but this was a, a vampire tale called Revamp, and it was a musical now, Emma I've never Stace, sung was before. Emma Stacey involved? Yes, yes, yes she was yes, one of the leads. Yes, and they'd lost their main, uh, the lead actor to play. Basically, the story is about Van Helsing, who is now a vampire, and he's trying to find a way to reverse it so he can come back to being a human again. And it's it's really you know sort of sleazy and quite you know adult, um, but there's some really good songs in it and. I did an audition saying, oh, well, you know, what the heck? You know, I've been on stage as a rapper, but never as a singer, but we'll give it a go. And I sent an audition in and they loved it and they gave me the role. And uh, I started panicking then because it was like <laughs> 100 pages and like nine songs to learn. And I was like, ah, oh. and it was during lockdown as well. So nobody could get together to rehearse. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I managed to memorize two of the songs in the first scene. And I was like, this is never going to work. Um, you know, I thought my brain was going to fail. Um, but uh, they put it on hiatus and they kind of cancelled it. It'll come back at some point. Um, I don't know if I'll be available or whatever, or they'll completely recast. But it, it does seem like a really good, fun thing. And, uh, well, out of it, I met Hannah Clift, who was also playing one of the lead roles in it. Mm. And Hannah Clift has got a role in Bloody Students now because she's just a massive ball of talent. I mean, the, the one thing that is that is great about being in, living in Wales and sort of is the amount of talent that is mm. here, the, an untapped talent that is. Yeah, I mean, I will I will uh, preface or uh, add to that that Hannah is not from Wales; she's from <laughs> um, she's from Bristol. But uh, yeah, Emma and everyone else is from Wales. Um, there there weren't many um, people out of Wales in this uh, thing. So yeah, I mean, there's it's it's like a little. Um, like a mini Hollywood or something, because everyone knows everyone else, you know. Valley like you, say, you know, <laughs> yeah. Me and you have worked with Ross O'Hennessy and people I know. Everyone's worked with with people like Emma Stacey and Amy Rowlands because they're like you know, sort of heavy hitters. Mandy Rose is another one. Yeah, well, um, both you know, both are attached to um, to School Hall and uh, bloody my, students. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, um, absolutely. And I mean, um, you got a great cast for bloody students. Looking at you, you got a fantastic cast. Do you know, well, they're, they're pretty much my wish list, my dream cast. And um, I am really worried that one, maybe more of them will drop out um, in the run up to filming because they're so talented and they're yeah. getting their jobs. <laughs> that is um, the moment, Someone like it? Mandy, she's been traveling all year in different countries. So she, she was in Geneva and Germany and 
all these other places. And I'm like, she's going to end up getting like a companion role in Doctor Who. And yeah. I'll, I'll miss my chance, you know. <laughs> so I'm I'm hoping against all hope. And this is another reason, listeners, why uh, we, we need pledges and donations as quick as possible. Because that way we can keep hold of the cast we've currently got. And I get to work with some of these people who I am, frankly, in awe of. Um, you know, I've I've seen all these actors in the uh, in Bloody Students acting, and it's like a dream to work with people like Emma Stacey and uh, uh, Mandy Rose and Hannah. So it's like, bring it on! Yeah, you know? I mean, um, we did uh, Emma did, did Iron for us uh, for me um, last time re- a short film, really, yeah. really, really short, um, but a sword and sandals job, and she okay. is just. Um, she's absolutely fantastic. She's just so giving. Um, yeah. She's a director's dream. She's an absolutely director's dream. And she can, you know, and she is physically up to doing most, mo- you know, fight choreography. Yeah, she's she's done, she, I've she, seen she's done lots of courses in that kind of stage fighting and all that malarkey. Yeah. So she's properly capable, you know. Oh, yeah. And she's just, a, just an all-round, just fab, fab, fabulous person. Just a fab person. Yeah, and she's sort of two foot taller than me. So yeah. she would you know, knock my head off. <laughs> So. Now, in terms of like we talked, you, you talked about Offworld, um, yeah. and uh, you, you, you do you have a pref- and like Offworld is obviously science fiction. Mm. Um, uh, Bloody Students is obviously although a horror comedy, you know, you, yeah. is uh, has the, you know that horror element. Are you particularly interested in in a particular genre, or is it that you you know you're a fan of most genre? You know, where do you stay? Do you have a preferred genre to work in? Um, well, if we're talking about um, stuff that I write or make, um, I'm always going to go back to sci-fi. Uh, I've always been a sci-fi geek. Um, you know, I, I, I do like certain horror films. I'm not a, the biggest horror fan in the world, you know, but mm. I do like the classic stuff back in the 80s, the Evil Deads and uh, Dark Man and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I will always, I think, go back to sci-fi um, but and and I've said this in other podcasts. I'm not going to disparage anyone who wants to make, you know, slice of life kitchen sink drama type things because there's a, there's an audience for that and there's a mm. big audience for mm. people who want to see stuff that isn't very genre. But uh, that kind of thing doesn't interest me because I think as a kid, uh, especially with things like Star Wars from when I was about eight, you know, yeah. I equate cinema with escapism, escaping, you know your everyday life which will be less than in, less interesting than you know watching something on screen so i will always go back to sci-fi someone said to me well you know if you do bloody students what would you do next and i was like well i would probably think of another sci-fi idea mm. um but then again I, you know i might go into a different type of genre so maybe it would be uh not so much sword and sorcery but you know something to do with magic or you know i don't know it's uh, one of them things really but then again if somebody came back to me with a, a suitcase full of money and said <laughs> we want a sequel to bloody students i'm like where do i sign let's yeah. go yeah. <laughs> do you um in terms of you know you mentioned star wars and things but do you have um whether it's in you know i i like you know i, I i'm a i'm a horror is my first love Okay. Um, but I do, I do love science fiction. I do love, you know, you know, my the, you listen to the intro to the show, and this, yeah. you know, this it's a uh, horror and sci and sci fi, but we dip into other genres. Well, um, undead and Wookie, so yes, kind of says it all. Yes, yeah. um, but do you do you have a particular um, author or filmmaker in terms of sci fi that you go back to? Um, well, uh, before I even got into filmmaking, um, 
I wrote books and I, I put a trilogy of novels out with Candy Jar in Cardiff and mm. they were sci-fi comedies. So really heavily influenced by Douglas Adams. Um, so I love all this stuff just because there's wordplay and it's very, uh, very, very British. And, you know, there's some, you know, interesting uh, the ideas. The important question and... is right now, Terry, do you know where your towel is? I do. I have a black towel uh, literally <laughs> about five feet from me because I'm upstairs next to the bathroom, and there's a black towel with the words don't panic embroidered into it that glow in the dark so you can find it in the dark. There we go. Beat that. (laughs) And I do have right in front of me, I've got a signed uh, first page of the mostly harmless novel signed by Douglas Adams, and it cost me a fortune, but that looks over me as my lucky charm. Wonderful. So, um, you know, do you have, you know, I mean, one of my favourite, I'm... In terms of sci-fi, I I love, um, I do like space opera, um, and don't get me wrong, I love, um, you know, things, um, uh, you know, 2001, some of the, you know, know, that that, that sort of, like, quite sort of high-end stuff, but equally, I find myself going back to at least twice a year watching Roger Coleman's Battle Beyond the Stars. Well, that one, I enjoy it. But there's something about it. It, it. It's because it's Roger Corman, probably. Um, it, I think, because of those films at the time, where a lot of them were tarred with the brush of, oh, it's a cheap version of Star Wars. Um, uh, the only thing I would change out about Beyond the Stars is the horrendous design of that spaceship. Because yeah. it's obviously <laughs> it's quite bulbous at the front. And uh, really, and I didn't notice it as a kid. I just thought, nope. look at the cool guns on the front of that. And yeah. that turns out it's a pair of jugs. Um, <laughs> now. You know, it's got George Peppard in it, which is also great, and it's got lizard guys at lizard guy. Yeah, yeah he's fantastic. Um, yeah, Dan O'Hurley. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, I it's I mean, it's that genre of sci-fi, that era. Yeah, um, I should say that uh, I really like because you know, next to me I've got a, a DVD rack and I've got Time Bandits, Dark Star, oh. um, Silent Running, you know, Moonraker, uh, Doctor Who and the Daleks. You know, just basically all the uh, you know, pre-CGI, I guess, uh, sci-fi movies. So I love all that kind of stuff as yeah. well. But yeah. nowadays, I think, I can't I, I can't think of anyone who doesn't like Edgar Wright um, because he can do everything. He's a bloody genius. Yes, he is. Um, and everyone has their favorites, you know. There, there's some films they may like more than, than others, but every film of his has got an amazing, you know, uh, production design and editing, and it's fast and it's witty and, you know... Uh, this is probably another reason why I'm doing bloody students because uh, it's not I'm, it's not my attempt to copy him. It's more attempt to pay homage to him the same way that Shaun of the Dead pays homage to George Romero yeah. and uh, yeah, Hot Fuzz absolutely. pays homage to the American uh, like things like Point Break and stuff like that. So it's just a kind of tip of the hat and a and a, and a thank you to to him and other people in the the, the cheesy VHS era films like the John Carpenter stuff and the Sam Raimi stuff. So, you know, why not have a lot of fun? I mean, I'm 54 this year. So it's a bit late to be getting into filmmaking, but if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? You know, I don't think there's any, I think it's never too late. I think, you know, I've, you know, I've always, I've always said to anyone, you know, it doesn't matter if it doesn't have to be filmmaking. It could be like, if you, you know, I've got a friend who's two years older than me and he's only now considering doing a bit of cosplay. I'm like, go for it. What are you waiting for? I think you Go get. I think it gets to a point where you get old enough and you just think, "Fuck it." I'm, do you yeah. know what? I'm not playing by. I, you I, do. I, you I, do. I, I think that's yeah. what it is. I think that's what it is. 
you know um, you worry when as a kid you know you worry if you're going to be cool or and then when you get older you go do you know what i can do what i like who's yeah. gonna stop you know yeah yeah and i'm I, not th- i'm not even afraid of looking stupid it's like i'll just do it there yeah. is something deeply liberating about that about yeah. having that moment of do you know what i'm at that point where i don't, I don't give a shit yeah. Like, you know yeah so it... so what's going to happen someone's going to go oh you look stupid so that's your opinion and you're entitled to it. Great. Absolutely. <laughs> now, you've also mentioned that, you know, of course, she's, you know, you've, you know, you, you were, were at one stage a rapper. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did that come about? Um, well, you know, we were into rap and hip hop and that kind of stuff, you know, from when, when breakdancing first started in like 1985, I remember. Yeah. Um, you know, so you, we went from dancing to kind of, you know, doing some cassettes and rapping and stuff. And, um, by the time we got to 1992, uh, our, our group was kind of disbanding, but um, we ended up meeting a, a guy from Cardiff, and he said, let's, let's just do a couple more demos. So we started to do a few demos, and we had a really near miss um, with a, a big record deal because in 91, I think it was, um, we were playing end of term gigs at some local schools comprehensives mm. and there was this one school up sort of my way up in oakdale and it was oakdale comprehensive and they had like an end of school disco and we knew the dj so he's like do you want to come up and do a pa so we went up there and we did a number of our own rap songs and for us it was beatlemania it was it was full of you know <laughs> teenage girls i was 23 at the time so i still felt a bit old but there was these just hundreds of teenage girls at the front of the stage trying to pull us off, screaming, you know, we're like, wow, this is good. So we went and told uh, the guy who was running the recording studio for us, and he said, I'm going to get a record company down to see you next time you do this. So we organized another gig at the same school, you know, knowing there'd be a good crowd. And we recorded uh, a new song. We recorded a cover version of Bill Withers' Lovely Day. Nice. Um, because that was in the charts around that time it was a, a remix by ben Liebrand, so they put some beats over it um so we did a rap version so you know we all did a, a verse each between the three of us and our dj did a scratch verse where you're scratching stuff up and in the chorus was lovely day lovely day you know yeah and we managed to get the head of a and r steve ripley his name was don't know if he's still with us uh from sony to come down and see us and he stood in the wings as we did like eight songs including lovely day and he went he met us afterwards after we cleared the screaming girls out of the changing room <laughs> yeah he was like uh, guys what can i say you 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 guys have got it don't be sending any more tapes out don't send any more cassettes out to any other companies i need to speak to my bosses i was like oh great so we were over the moon thinking this is it this is the big time um and it went quiet and we wrote to him and we phoned him and it went quiet and there was nothing and nothing and nothing and in the summer of the following year, um, the Kevin Costner film came out, The Bodyguard. <laughs> and on the CD soundtrack for The Bodyguard is a song called It's Gonna Be a Lovely Day, which is a rap song uh, with the choruses going, Lovely Day, Lovely Day. Oh. And it's on Sony Records. Oh, now, man. Make of that what you will. But what happened was, um, at least with, with the song that, I, that appeared on The Bodyguard soundtrack, was it was recorded by a group called Soul System. And Soul System was basically the CNC Music Factory, uh, the Clavillas and Cole uh, guys who were the producers. Who yeah. did, everybody dance yeah. now, you know. And they basically 
somehow came up with almost the exact uh, structure of the song that we did, a cover of Bill Withers Lovely Day with a rapper in it. They got a female rapper to do it. And um, it was on Sony and it was, you know, it was, you know, to this day, it might be a case of great minds thinking alike, but somehow I don't think so. Just too many coincidences. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, two years later, our band was about to disband uh, completely. One of the guys left and uh, as a last ditch attempt, we were watching Normski on BBC Two. There was a program called uh, Def Two. Yes, uh, I remember that. They had a, a dance program called Dance Energy. So 6 p.m. on a BBC Two. And they did a, a competition called Lift Off. And what you had to do was get a camcorder. And because no one had mobile phones with cameras that back in the day, <laughs> just get a, get a VHS camcorder and film yourself doing a song, like a video or whatever, send it in. And over six weeks, they would pick um, three videos per week. And the viewers had to phone in a certain number, 08, 08, 98, blah, 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 with a, with a one on the end if you like video one, with a two on the end if you like video two, etc. So our song, Bring on the Sunshine, which was a blatant steal of uh, Jazzy Jeff and a Fresh Prince Summertime. <laughs> I mean, we didn't, we didn't sample any of it, but it was that vibe and everything, yeah, you know, yeah. talking about chilling out and meeting your friends for drinks and chatting chicks up, you know, and all this. And... Um, our song was the first video on the first week of the heats and we won that heat. We won the second heat. We won them all. And the prize was 24 hours. You get to re-record the song in a, in a top London recording studio and do a video and it gets released and pressed within 24 hours, wow. which is like a record made it in the record books. Apparently fastest turnaround of a British rap single. So we won. And uh, they shipped us off to London. We went to Psalm West, which is the studio owned by Trevor Horn, who did, uh, he's famous for Frankie Goes to Hollywood, yeah, Grace would, Jones, yeah. Video Kill the Radio Star. Um, he sang that. Um, but it was his studio where they did uh, Let Do They Know It's Christmas. We we're in the very same studio. Um, so we recorded our song. Then the next day we went to a North London studio to do the video. So it was nine and a half hours of bouncing up and down. <laughs> Um, in front of a steady cam and uh and then we got sent home and uh the single came out in june i think it was june uh, july early july 1993 one of the first people to play it was janice long on radio one she was uh the late janice long yeah. died a couple of years ago uh keith chegwin's sister in fact um and she played it for us uh on her show and then um we got to number 93 which sounds terrible that's but considering we had no airplay, you know, that's um, impressive. Than, yeah, well, our manager said at the time that uh, you know, take that's first three singles didn't even get into the top hundred, so they said you did you did okay, you know. And on the strength of that, um, we got a second single, so we recorded our second single, and uh, that got us a, a UK tour with E17. Um, so that single got us onto the smash hits poll winners party. Um, so we did the. <laughs> The UK tour we did, uh, Birmingham, Sheffield, uh, Glasgow SECC, and then Wembley Arena. Um, record got to number 64. And then we went on tour with East 17 as the main support act for uh, over a month, a month and a half. We did, four, four, we did over 100 gigs, basically. Wow. And um, at that point, things started going wrong <laughs> because <laughs> the record company said, 
okay, what have you got left to rec- to put out? And we had a about five or six demos that were you know roughly done you know at home in Cardiff or whatever mm. in a studio, and we sent them and they said, well, there's nothing we really like there. Can you record some more? I said, well, we're broke. We we've literally spent all our money on touring. And we've used up all the money you gave us on the single because you don't you don't get a lot. Of, we I think we had, they give us an advance of about five thousand pound between five oh, of us and a is tour it really? manager. Yeah, it was peanuts, you know. Um, so, you know, we um, we said, look, we've got this one song which we could probably rejig it, re-record it if you can, you know, lend us some money. And they said, well, we're not we're not going to give you any more money. You'll have to find it from somewhere else. So luckily, our manager uh, Tim Byrne, his name was he managed to get us a, a publishing deal uh, with a, a London company that's got uh, you know, roots in Germany or whatever. And they said, oh, we'll give you some money in advance so you can record a new new single to put out as quick as possible. So we recorded this song called Wanna Pump, and it sounded a bit like Jump Around, the House mm-hmm. of Pain tune, you know, the classic. And um, we recorded a version of it that we thought was great. Sent it to the record company. They said it was horrible. Um <laughs> because it sounded too much like an American rap record. Um, now, you have to bear in mind, our A&R man at the record company was a guy called Nathan McGough, who was famous for being the Happy Mondays manager. Um, and his boss, the head of uh, the, the A&R chairman or whatever, was a guy called uh, Mark Fox, who was the bass player for an 80s group called Haircut 100. That's right. And um, both of them were sitting there with their Mercedes and their cigars telling us how rap music should sound. <laughs> I'm like, none of you are qualified. Anyway, no. so they said, look, you can have one more shot at re-recording the song or remixing the song so it sounded more commercial, in inverted commas. Mm. So they put me in a studio with a guy called Robin Goodfellow who produced all of E17's biggest hits, House of Love, It's All Right, you know, yeah. those kind of things, yeah. Deep. And we recorded a song that was a lot more melodic. It was a lot more kind of happy. It sounded it had a happy sound to it. It was a pop song. Yeah. And uh, they played it to us. We got back to Wales after touring, and a manager phoned me up. And this at the time, this was like I had to run to a payphone because we didn't have <laughs> mobile. So I'm at a payphone, and he, he said, "I'll ring you back." So he rings me back, and um, he plays me the record over the phone, and I'm listening to it, going, "Okay, okay, yeah, I can live with that." Unfortunately, I, he said, what do you think? And I said, I don't mind it. I tell you now, the other four in the band are going to hate it because the other four in the band were a bit more, I don't know, kind of, I, I didn't mind pop music, but they, those guys really wanted to be hardcore rappers, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so they were like, we want to be Cypress Hill and you're giving us, you know, I don't know, De La Soul or um, Jazzy Jeff or something. Yeah. So I played him played the song and the, the guys in the band went, ooh, this is horrible. And I said, guys, it's this or nothing because we haven't got any money. We can't record anything else. And it, we're kind of on the precipice of getting dumped by the record company. Um, so the the four against one kind of thing situation. And basically they said, no, we're not going to do it. We have to stand up to the record company. I said, OK. So that sounds like the end of the road. But what happened then was our manager says, look, I can squeeze out uh, a free recording session with my friends. I was like, okay, down in Brighton, I think it was. So we went down to Brighton, uh, and these guys, um, nice nice couple of guys, they had one record in the charts many years ago. It was a trip-hop version of Strawberry Fields Forever. 
um, the group was called Candy Flip. Do you know what? Uh, I actually remember that. I, I yeah, remember that. It was that basically tra- singing Strawberry Fields Forever over the, you know, the funky drummer beat, yeah. the public enemy beat. Yeah, yeah. And that was a big hit. And so we met those two and they remixed uh, our song again the third time. And the record company said, do you know what? Let's put it out. Let's just let's just go for it. And we're like, oh, thank God for that. You know, because we were trying to capitalize on the 100,000 kids we just played to over a month with E17. Yeah. Um, even if they'd have put out our first single again, you know, that would have done, that would have charted. And I mean, I'm sorry, this, this story is getting so intertwined. No, it is fine. Keep going. Our manager was friends with, um, he used to work for the BBC anyway. He was, um, on the, the, the BBC two dance energy program. Um, we didn't win the record deal because of him, but he helped run the show the the dance energy show, but we approached him at the end of it and said, we need a manager. So that's how that happened. So he said, I can get you on top of the pops as an exclusive. And if we get you on as an exclusive, you'll, you'll hit the top 40 and then you'll get a record deal, uh, an album deal from the record company. And at the very last minute, the record company said, we don't like the song anymore. Oh, pull it. And they pulled it. And then they basically, fired us um squashed the deal it we we left the company uh in the red to the tune of seventy thousand pounds but because they ended the, the they terminated the contract we didn't have to pay that wow um but it was a it was a close one for a while and uh that's that's the record company kid the record business kids and that was before myspace before you know mp3s uh everything was on cd cassette 12 inch 7 inch vinyl and uh, nowadays, you know, there's so much more power in the hands of the artist. You can do it yourself. You can put it out there. You can get on Spotify. You can get on Amazon. You can get on iTunes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, and, and this goes back to filmmaking. You can, you know, most people have got a phone in their pocket that can take better quality than, you know, most video cameras back well, I mean, if you think like, you know, I mean, if you think of like, you know, the new, you know, new iPhone 14, um, yeah. so it is the 40. I mean, Michael Mann is now shooting predominantly on an iPhone. It's insane, isn't it? It's it's incredible. It is incredible. I uh, mean, I'm knocked out by. I mean, I haven't got a. a I've got a pretty low end Samsung, and it still shoots in you know like, um, 1080. And I'm like, my first film off world is shot in 1080. It's like, what's stopping me from making a film on a phone? You know, well, there's nothing. I mean, we. I mean, I shot my first short film way back a long long time on uh, mini dv and there you go yeah you know that that was mind-blowing that was that was just you know the fact that we had these cassettes you know and we were changing yeah. cassettes and those kind of things but still it, it was mini, it was digital it yeah, was digital, digital it, it allowed video. us to do and that well, I mean, when was that sort of like 2000s oh let me think yeah must yeah. have been early 2000s I had, I had a friend who would come round. He had a, he had a mini DB camera, and he also had a full size VHS camera, camcorder, and he was trying to shoot stuff. And I just didn't like the look of it at the time, especially with especially with your VHS camera because it looked like someone's wedding. You know that kind of horrible yeah. uh, lines going down the picture. So and it ten was very kind of ten years ago, ten years ago, yeah. I was shooting a mini DV. Ten years yeah. ago, and um, I was like, this doesn't look like a film to me. It doesn't look cinematic enough. Yeah. Um, so it took it took a while, I think, for me to get my head around, you know, the more sort of modern technology and go, oh, now you can do stuff that looks more cinematic, you know. Yeah. Rather than shooting on VHS, you know. But there you go. And I mean, it's you know one of the things that you know when I did did the short version of School Hall, I learned so many lessons. 
so many uh, how uh, you know basically of how not to do things exactly absolutely hundred percent i mean I read one of my favorite quotes is something I only read in the last year or so on Instagram. And it was a picture of Quentin Tarantino. And he said, there's no better film school than going to make just making a film yourself. Oh, Um, absolutely. And Offworld. And I've said this many times and I'm not trying to disparage my own film, but everything went wrong. Everything you can imagine went wrong down to money, friendships, uh, time, location, weather, effects, um, injuries. Uh, we had loads of injuries on set. Um, everything went wrong. The edit went wrong. The grading was wrong. There was the sound. We, we nearly lost uh, our entire recordings of the sound. Uh, we nearly oh. the hard drive nearly went corrupt for the, the the footage itself. There was so much politics going on, and you know, I I've made some friends via Offworld, but I've also lost about five or six. Yeah, um, yeah, it happens. You know, and, I've also burnt bridges with people. I think, you know, it didn't work out and I, you know, I don't wish them any ill will, but I'm not, I ain't working with them again. Um, and, you know, so everything went wrong. But at the end of the day, we still had the bones of a film that an American distributor was interested in. And it's not an epic just because it's taken seven years to get to the finish line. doesn't mean we had seven years of tinkering with it. You know, we tinkered with it when we could. Yeah. And yeah. when we could afford it. Um, but again, it's taught me so much. And now... I understand everything they say about, you know, George Lucas's quote about films aren't finished. They're only abandoned. (laughs) At some point you stop and go, that's it. That'll do. Yeah. I'm not going to tinker with this anymore. Any more fiddling with this and it'll be necrophilia because the film died (laughs) a long time ago. Um, And it's right. And this time around with Bloody Students, uh, I'm doing everything, quote unquote, properly. My, my, My brain is reminding me of this is the way to do it and to avoid this problem that you had before you do this and, and I'm doing everything in the right order and I'm writing better drafts better dialogue um, I'm just you know casting better everything it's when, just um, when you write how many drafts do you gen- generally do um, I think I think the question mainly is not how many you do but when do you stop because um, I stopped I at 13 a, for school oh, hall. my life no I <laughs> I, I I would go mad long before 13, before I got into double figures. It got but, to I the mean, point where I think I, the only pl- thing I could do was set it in space. Yeah. I think with Offworld, we got up to about eight drafts, and that was because it was me and my co-writer, Chris Lynch, and we bounced it back and forth. And every time we send it over, that's a new draft. So he would tie up all the loose ends that I've left open, and I he'd come back to me, and I'd untie a few going, oh, I like the... The vagueness mm. of that. I like the uh, make your own mind up about this. And I'd send it back to him and he'd tie it back up. So yeah. we got to about eight drafts on that. But with Bloody Students, I was determined to write it all myself. Not out of an ego thing, but just to see what I could do on my own. Mm. Um, I, I have bounced it off other people, you know, read it online at some point on live YouTube videos just to get some feedback. So I'm not like, you know, I'm a genius. Leave me alone. <laughs> it's, you know, I, w- I want to get some feedback on it. Um, but I want to... Leave it rather than have a co-writer sort of dilute it so that I haven't got a very good idea of what I can create from scratch. Um, So this one I'm writing on my own and I've done my first draft was 140 pages, you know, and that equates to about 140 minutes. Mm. And I thought, well, the the golden number for me is 90, Um, but I don't mind editing down to 75 or 80 minutes you know make it a bit tighter um i'm on draft five uh and it's currently 
87 pages, uh, which gives me lots of wiggle room to expand because there's going to be scenes where these students are running around fighting mummies. And, you know, one line in the script would say they fight some mummies and then they run through the door. You know, so that they fight some mummies could go on for four minutes. Like, well, know. I mean, ta- I mean, classically in Kill Bill, Tarantino in his yeah. in the script, they fight, they fight, <laughs> yeah. which is um, which is which is which is you know, which is genius, particularly given the sort of. Excuse, <coughs> excuse me, I'm just joking. Yeah. No, I know what you're saying. That basically the um, oh, excuse they, me. they fight translates into hand it to the stunt coordinator who's going to create something amazing. Well, when you have why you ping, I think you, yeah. you are more than you know. When you were writing, do you have a particular process that you go through? Yeah, um, the the only way I know how to write is to do a, a, uh, I think they call it a scriptment nowadays, but it's basically, I I used to read a lot of James Cameron's treatments for films. Uh, The first one I ever read was the one he wrote for Spider-Man for, uh, um, it's going to be Michael Bean was going to be Peter Parker, you know, and he, he kind of invented the scriptment, which is like, it's just a treatment, but he'll throw in the occasional few lines of dialogue here and there and some camera moves. And um, so it's it's a weird blend of script and, you know, synopsis. So I write a quite a detailed treatment. And then with each paragraph or each sentence, I'll break that down into scenes. And then I'll break those scenes down into, you know, sort of dialogue and whatever. And And even then, you know, I'm looking at my scripts now compared to, say, Offworld. And my scripts now are like nine times more. I don't know why I picked nine out of the blue. Joshua <laughs> said ten. Ten times more, like professional. It's like I'm more efficient with my words rather than yeah being really you know descriptive and it's a muscle, isn't it? Right into muscle. Yeah. Right into that. It is yeah. muscle. And I mean, obviously, you've written novels. Yeah, you've written novels. Uh, how do you sort of? I mean. Is there a difference between writing a screenplay and a no- to a novel, or is it yeah, just I, well, the mechanics or the process or the feel? Talk, talk, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, the the process for me for writing a novel is the same as writing a script. I write a synopsis and a basic storyline, then I expand it by you know every sentence will say, uh, "There's a guy who lives in a house," and then I'll go, "Okay, that's like the intro," and then you go. He gets into a fight with someone and you go, right, that's like the middle bit. Yeah, and then I go from there's a guy in a house and then I break that down into who's the guy, what's the house, why is he in the house, where is the house, you know, and you sort of expand it and get bigger. But with novels, I find you kind of you kind of expand your basic ideas, mm. you know, to, to uh, get more descriptive. But with a script, it's almost backwards. You kind of you trim down and you get things down to the bare minimum words that make uh, you know, the get the point across without being too verbose, I guess. So it's like, um, I, I, I would say with, with bloody students, it started off at about 140 pages and then I wanted to get it down and I hate cutting bits out, but that's a, a really important thing that everyone's got to get the grips with because yeah. your brain tells you, I wrote this, it must be good. And <laughs> but you yeah. go, oh, I've got to cut this. And I think, uh, Joss Whedon called it "killing your babies." King, it's it's a quote from King. Is it um, him? It's yeah, yeah. from um, "Kill uh, Your Babies." There is uh, a brilliant book. Have you um, "Dance Macabre"? No, no, I by Stephen it. King, and it's yeah. basically King talking about writing. Yeah, and actually, you know, the other thing that you know, if people are listening, the audio vision uh, version of it is actually read by King himself. Okay. 
And the one thing, you know, there are some types, some of King's books that he's done. I'm a massive King nerd, huge Stephen King nerd. Um, And some of his audiobooks that he's read himself are dog shit. But, (laughs) um, sorry, Mr. King, but they are. Um, But his, him reading Dance Macabre, because he talks about, talks about killing your children. Yeah. And then he talks about the importance of, um, of grammar, yeah, and you know people forget it's really you know little things, and he talks about the difference as well about between writing and those about screenwriting and those kind of things, mm. but um, the, you know the idea of killing your children is so important. It's painful. Yeah. I mean it, it is a painful thing, um, but I don't go as far as to. I mean, I read this. Uh, it was like an Empire magazine feature on Joss Whedon a few years ago, and he said get your best scenes and cut them out. And then, you know, whatever's left over, make that better. And I'm like, yeah, but if you keep doing that, you'll have nothing left. Yeah. <laughs> because you, you've cut out the good scene. You've got a couple of bad scenes. So you improve those and then they become the good scenes that you have to cut out. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to cut out too much. Um, I would basically, uh, I mean, in, in, in the process of making your script more efficient and moving things, uh, earlier making them tighter i mean in the first draft of bloody students nothing remotely you know monstery happened till like page 65 of 140 pages that's like that's an hour and five minutes people want to see stuff happening you know and Shaun of the dead you see a zombie in within 12 minutes yeah so i'm like i've got it this 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 decisive action this moment um when things start moving has got to be earlier so you think right, what can i lose so you start cutting down lines and making dialogue less wordy and descriptions less wordy just so it looks better on the page and the the, exci- the inciting incident moves earlier and earlier. And at one point I went, I'm going to have to lose a character. I was like, I've probably got too many people in this. And and can I, can I lose a character but then blend that character's lines in with another character yeah. and kind of, you know, amalgamate them into, so you've got one less character. So I did that. I, I, I killed off, um, again, it's like killing your babies. I killed off, like, probably my favorite character was a character called Flake, who was just really uh, obnoxious and sarcastic to everyone. So he had all the best bitchy lines. So I thought, oh, I don't want to lose all his yeah. stuff. So I cut him out <laughs> completely. But I kept hold of his lines in a different, you know, document. I was like, right, so I'm going to start peppering these funny lines with everyone else. And uh, it seemed to have worked. You know, it, it, it must have saved me about 20 pages. So... And you don't miss the guy at all. It's and interesting, fact, you know, when you it? look back, yeah, I want to go back to my first draft one, to one at one one point and just go, oh, wasn't this like at the time you think it's genius, but you look back at it and you'll go, this is just dripping in fat. You know, it's just unnecessary yeah. wordy lard. You know, yes, like, get rid of it. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, one of my, I mean, for me, and I say this all the time, I think The Exorcist is the it is my citizen king it is the i think it is the greatest film ever made it's fantastic i was watching a, a making of recently on um on youtube about it yeah totally it is and but also from the point of view of william peter blatty yeah is a phenomenal writer yeah when you read the exorcist the book it is terrifying it is absolutely terrifying that's one for my to-do list. I think I've never read the book of the exorcist. Obviously I've only ever seen the film and that, that put the, the, the bejeebus up me when I was a kid, you know, and, uh, even today by 
modern people's standards. You know, I could show The Exorcist to, you know, my daughter, and she'd be like, "It's a bit crummy in it." Yeah. <laughs> like, but it, 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 the if something scares you when you're a kid, that stays with you. Oh, completely. You know, I can completely. still watch the thing from another world, the black and white version from the fifties, and still get a chill, even though it's a very tall guy with horns on his head. Yeah. You know, it's not the John Carpenter thing, which is you know also based on the same story, but. Mm. But, you know, it just gets to you. And th- uh, let's talk about City of the Living Dead by Lucio Fulci. Oh, Fulci's. yes. Yeah. Um, that came out during the VHS era um, with Evil Dead and Driller Killer and all these other ones yeah. that people have heard about. And, um, you know, once a week, me and a bunch of guys would get together. The one kid in the in the town who had a VHS recording, his parents were out on a Saturday afternoon. We are like, let's get a horror. So we got City of the Living Dead. And... <laughs> And uh, really atmospheric, you know, this this uh, Italian, you know, um, kind of low budget stuff. It just felt because it was low budget and it was, you know, even the picture quality wasn't great. It was just it felt more real, something yeah. about it. So we're all sitting around the TV watching this, getting really engrossed, not a word spoken. And there's the scene where there's a couple in a car and I think they're sort of making out. And right in front of them is like Father Thomas, I think his name was. Yes. And he's hung himself, so he's standing like an apparition in front of the car. And the woman becomes entranced with him. And, like, her eyes start bleeding blood. Um, and then not long after that, she starts throwing up her own insides. It's... And to this day, I don't remember seeing that scene because I, it's the only time I've turned away and put my head in a pillow and went, I can't watch this, I can't watch this. And I still haven't gone back to watch it in in the era of many years of you know decades of internet. Now I still haven't gone back to watch that scene, and you know why? Because now I read up exactly how they did it, <laughs> and and that's almost as horrific as watching the film. I mean, the actress uh, it wasn't done with a fake head or rubber guts. No, it was done for real with uh, the guts of a rabbit <laughs> that she had to swallow whole without chewing uh in order for it to come up in one go and she had to swallow them raw but like fresh where they were still warm from the body of the rabbit so they wouldn't shrivel up or anything (laughs) so she had to get that down her neck somehow and then stick her fingers down her throat to throw it back up and i'm cringing now just thinking about it i mean Fulci is you know you know he's he's one of my you know he's one of my idols but his he was not known for, you know, he was known for being particularly tough on his cast. Yeah, I mean, um, that, that story just says it all, doesn't it? And, and I mean, uh, like, I mean, that, you know, the City of the Living Dead is, you know, is part of the Gates of Hell trilogy. Yeah. Know? So you get, um, you get the Beyond in there. You get the House by the Cemetery. Oh, the Beyond. That's one. I, do you know what? I don't think I've ever seen it. That's when oh. we used to get the Fangorias and the, um, the other slasher mags, and um, uh, it was like. I always, I always see stills of the Beyond, and I was like, "We got to get this," and we couldn't get it anywhere. We, you know, we asked all the video shops, couldn't get it. I could probably watch it on YouTube for free now, um, so maybe I will. It's it's but... wonderful. It is it is. I mean, one of the things I think with with all of Fulci's films is there's a dreamlike feel yeah. to it. To that's, all, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It feels very surreal. Absolutely, and it's and it's sort of and most Italian horror was dubbed. Anyway, so they would none of the actors That's did it. their own dialects. Yeah. So, so, so even if they were speaking Italian, 
they were redubbed. So yeah. you had English actors speaking in English, also acting with Italian actors and actresses. I found that so confusing. Speak so the Italian actors would be speaking Italian at the same time. Yeah, that's what threw me. I was like, "What? Hang on, that guy is like, now listen here, man." And he's talking, and he's and he's like, "The lip sync fits the voice, but then you've got this other guy whose lip sync doesn't fit the voice. It's like a like one of those you know badly dubbed uh, kung fu movies." And yeah. you go, "How does this work?" And yeah. then you realise it's an Anglo-Italian, you know, like Spaghetti Westerns. It's a kind of co-production. Absolutely. With, or with American actors in. And you think, what a weird way to make a film. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, um, I mean, Fulci's other great, you know, one of his Westerns, uh, For the Apocalypse, mm. is, is it, it's, it plays like an, almost like a surreal, it, it's, it's like a, like a dream and like a nightmare at times, even though it's not an outright horror. It's not a horror at all. But there's this sort of surreal, surrealness that sort of runs through it. It's part of the reason why I love Italian cinema. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, I'd I'd love to get some of that because you know, how do you how do you get that into your own films without, um, you know, without knowing how to do it? You know, you gotta you gotta know a little bit about film conventions and and what works and what doesn't work. And uh, I've got some ideas about I mean, what I'm going to do as well. But it'd be lovely to have that kind of thing. There are some times where it works. Where, it, where it, mm. you know, like I said, you know, with the, you know, with lots of Fulci, but then some people actually, you know, are not a massive fan of it, and yeah. you know, but Fulci in particular was able to sort of get that sort of like that that nightmare sort of feel sort of running through his stuff, and yeah. um, you know, but you know, even Corbucci, mind you, Sergio Corbucci, the other Sergio uh, Western, you know, it is is like okay. the great the great silence, is yeah. his other great. Um, you know, he also did like Django. The original okay. Django, and then he did The Great Silence, which Hateful Eight, strangely, you know, it had an influence. Right, right. But even his stuff has a has a particular sort of like dreamlike feel to it. Um, well, yeah, and you know, I think directors at some point find their style. You know, John uh, Sam Raimi does, John Carpenter does, Edgar Wright does, and at this point, you know, I've only directed like one film and maybe a short, and it's like I haven't found a style yet because I don't have enough films under my belt to know what I'm doing, you know, from like, I haven't done it more than once. So I don't have that, but I know what I want to do with bloody students stylistic wise. Um, and again, like you say, it doesn't always work because, you know, if JJ Abrams wanted to put lens flare in loads of his films all the way up to the star Wars and movies. Um, he did it in super eight and he did it in other things. And to him, it's more like a kind of homage to Spielberg. Yeah, uh, you look at some of the Spielberg movies, and you know they've got loads of lens flares in Close Encounters, especially. And um, it's a stylistic choice, admittedly. And if, say, for example, I wanted to shoot everything on a twenty-eight millimeter lens, so it's looking you're looking into a fishbowl, you know, like a Terry Gilliam movie, yeah. who I also love. That throws a lot of people off. Some people say, "Oh, you know, it's got too much of that," you know. But again, it's uh, you got to find your audience, and I think you got to make films for yourself. And hope that it, you know, strikes a chord with someone in the audience. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, where, um, in terms of, um, you obviously, where can we actually make sure that everybody gets the message and we know exactly where to go, so we can, you know, make sure that bloody, you know, students get as many people heading that way. Where can they find that now? Okay. Um, well, we have uh, the Kickstarter is running through May. So if you're listening to this after May, do not despair. Uh, we'll still take donations from you wherever you are. <laughs> um, 
we've set up a PayPal link. Uh, it's paypal.me forward slash the dog bloke, all in one word, <laughs> the dog bloke. Um, that's named for the production company, Dog Bloke Media. Uh, my mate Andy up north is uh, is sorting all that out. Um, so he's looking after the PayPal side of things um, because people can't do it via Kickstarter. If you're watching this during the month of May 2023, um, the Kickstarter is... The easiest way to remember it is tinyurl.com forward slash bloody students. Uh, so I've I've condensed the long and wo- wordy link from Kickstarter, blah, 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 to tinyurl.com forward slash bloody students. Um, or if you still don't remember that, it's bloodystudents.co.uk. That's all you need to do, bloodystudents.co.uk. And um, that's my site where i it's more of a blog and i put in all my notes all my thoughts all the links that you need and uh basically cover the uh the production of the film and uh as we're going and there's a there's always a chance that this kickstarter is not going to succeed and if it doesn't um it doesn't mean we're doomed it means we're just going to keep going like we have for the last year and maybe next year the you know the financial situation for everyone might be a bit better and uh, we may do another crowdfunder but We'll keep going. We've got some stuff to shoot in September. Uh, we're going to do some smaller scenes. And like I say, if uh, if anyone out there is into uh, British comedy, you may know of a guy called Paul Putner. Who, if you don't know the name, you'll know the face because he's been in every episode of Little Britain, Peter Serafinowicz show. Um, he was a zombie in Shaun of the Dead. And he was also a taxi driver in Shaun of the Dead, but that ended up in the deleted scenes. Um, he's agreed in principle to be in our film. Um, and when I say in principle, it's just down to his availability, basically, and can we afford him? But his <laughs> agent, his agent has said, "Look, feel free to use his name and his picture on your Kickstarter." He he does like the script, and he he, he phoned me last Sunday, and we had a nice chat. He's the same age as me, roughly. We're both from North London, uh, so we got on really well. You know, he loves his his comedy, his horror, all that kind of stuff. So he's super nice guy. Um, and then also we've got Sophie Aldred uh, from Doctor wow. Who, who was, you know she played Ace. In the 80s, and she also played Ace again in the most recent Jodie Whittaker episode. And you know, the rumors are that she's going to get her own spin-off series thanks to Russell T. Davis. And we thought she's not going to be interested in doing this, but it's a small part, it's a little cameo. And her agent again, super nice, and said, "Look, feel free to use her name and say that she's interested. And if all goes well, you get your financing and uh, you know the dates line up. She's she's going to come on board and do it." So. Uh, I'm waiting for her to come back from Australia. She's in Australia at the moment touring, and um, I'm hoping to get her on the phone so I can talk to her all about it. And uh, she's got the script anyway. So we're hoping that some of the Doctor Who fans will like get behind us, obviously, and go, oh, we'd like to see her, you know, in that. And the, for me, you know, the buzz of directing two people like Paul and Sophie, he's like, these are people I grew up watching TV with, you know, so it's like the thought that I get to direct them is a massive, massive buzz. It makes you step up my game like nobody's business yeah. and uh i'm i'm in negotiations with two more agents for two more uh, celebrity cameos so uh obviously i can't i can't i hate it when people say i can't tell you anything right now but you can't you can't just mention a name because if it doesn't come off a i'll look stupid and b you might get the um the agents uh, angry so um you want to keep I'm them on to get side? Some, a couple more you know uh known names in the film as the as cameos Terry, that's it. That sounds fantastic. And the, you know, like when you said, you know, Paul Putner, he was just like, oh, Little Britain, instantly. It yeah. Just, you know, and he's a great. 
he's, he's, a, a great he's, so, face. he's so knowledgeable about movies and TV from yesteryear and everything. Like I say, he's, he's about a year older than me. Um, he's he was uh, he was almost, as far as I know, a member of the group Madness. So he's he's friends with the the guys from Madness anyway. So I said to him, "Oh, you know, Madness did an Egyptian themed song called Night Boat to Cairo.' One of my favourites. Can, can you talk nice to them?" He's like, "Yeah, it's going to cost you, mate." I'm like, Fair <laughs> enough. But do you know what he's going to do anyway, whether he's in the film or not. Um, he put a tweet up saying, "Oh, I've been up in my attic the other day and I found a vintage Return of the Living Dead T-shirt." Uh, it's it's all mildew and smelly, but I'm going to wash it and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to probably wear it. Uh, and I mentioned it to him and I said, look, one of our characters in Bloody Students, her name is Kells. She's wearing a red leather jacket and she's kind of a homage to Linnea Quigley from Return of the Living oh, Dead. Fantastic. Uh, to the to the point where her son her surname is Quigley, so it's Kelly Quigley, and yeah. her her brother's in the film is called Tim Quigley. Um, but Paul said you can borrow the shirt for her to wear. Oh, it's so wonderful. Like, really? So he's like, yeah, he's like, I, I do want it back, though, because it's a vintage. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, he's, he said, I'll send you the shirt anyway. You know, oh, so I thought, what a nice chap. He didn't have to. Absolutely. But he, and like I say, we live in a world now where I have I have spoken to quite a few agents in the last year, and they just gone said no. One agent just said, how much have you got? I'm like, what? <laughs> so I, I want to know how much your, your the rate is for this actor that I'm interested in. And they go, no, it's not that. It's how much have you got? And I said, well, look, it's like a day's work, half a day's work. Maybe, maybe, uh, and I give them a figure and they go, well, you know, I'm like, that's the most I can afford. And they go, can you come back? Can you revise that figure and come back to us? I'm like, no, what part of low budget film and half a day's work do you not get? You yeah. know, at that point, you've got to go. <sighs> OK, so when the agents come back to you and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure they'll do that. Yeah, they're up for that. Yeah, feel free to mention them. It just re restores your faith in humanity because respect works. It's fine when you're a star and you're in the bubble of celebrity and everyone's helping each other out and doing stuff. But when you're like at my level where you're just like a nobody, it's very hard to get people who have made it to, you know, to look down the ladder, you know, and say, I can help you up here. But Absolutely. when they do, it really makes you feel, feel good, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, you know, I'm really, really excited. I, you know, I love a good mummy film. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, either choice. Mummies, werewolves or zombies. Right. And it's like werewolves are really expensive and difficult to do on a budget. Right? <laughs> Vampires have been done to death. Zombies have definitely been done to death. And it's like yes. your mummy doesn't get enough screen time, does he? <laughs> no, like... he doesn't. And he's, he's a tricky one to pull off. It's a really yeah. tricky one to oh, pull yeah. off. Really tricky to pull off. Uh, let me tell you, um, I, I was surfing um youtube the other day and i came across a british film called uh, i think it was called rise of the mummy i think it was given two titles um and um it is it is a very low budget film uh british film i think it was shot on iphones but they got the mummies wrong to begin with uh the first time you see a mummy he's about five foot four <laughs> and he's wearing a he's wearing a, a suit that is the baggiest thing in the world so all i can assume i don't want to rip rip holes into them because you know until until my mummies are on screen looking better i can't talk but like it it felt to me like they must have had a taller actor who then couldn't make it so they gave it to like the sound guy and said here stick this on and he's like but i'm five foot four <laughs> so you've got a five foot four mummy in a really baggy suit um and it just doesn't look right at all it's you know, such, it's, it's shot know. in broad daylight well so it's yeah. not even in the shadows so ooh. 
Yeah. I mean, it is. I mean, obviously, Carl, you know, the, the classic Universal, you know, Karloff. Uh, oh, yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Um, you've got. I've got it right here. I, I bought it from a charity shop, and, and Karloff, as the mummy, doesn't have a lot of screen time. He doesn't, um, he has very little. Um, but I've got I've got a legitimate connection between the actual Boris Karloff and bloody students. Oh, lay right? it on us. Okay. A friend of mine from Cardiff is an ex-Marvel artist, comics artist called Simon Williams. He is writing um, a uh, like a graphic novel, but it's 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 got five it's got four stories in it, um, and it's all going to be done in sepia tone. And it's called Monsters Are Real, and it takes the form of um, four guys in a pub. And they're talking about scary monsters and, and uh, urban legends. And there's an old man at the bar who looks exactly like Boris Karloff. And he says, if you'll permit me, gentlemen, I'll tell you some scary stories. Um, so basically it goes into there's a story about mummies. There's a story about werewolves, a story about vampires and a story about a kind of Frankenstein story. So Simon came to me and said, will you write me the mummy story? And I'm like, Sure. So I've written him a 10-page graphic novel prequel to Bloody Students. Oh, wow. Set 100 years before the film. So it's, it's in, the, in, the, in the sort of era when they were digging up Tutankhamun and stuff, and it's set in Egypt. Um, so the, the MacGuffin that brings mummies back to life has its origin in this graphic novel. Now, the graphic novel has been endorsed by Sarah Karloff, the daughter oh, wow, of Boris Karloff. Oh, wow, that is fantastic. So... Do you know, the, the whole point behind this gimmick is that basically Simon can say to people, well, you know the mummy story in, in my officially Sarah Karloff endorsed book, that the, the sequel to that story is Bloody Students. And I can say the prequel to Bloody Students is in a graphic novel endorsed by Sarah Karloff. That's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. I, you know, to, I, I like the universe throwing a, a little bit of a blessing my way. And I'm like, it's meant to be. It's great. Absolutely. It's falling into place, you know. That is wonderful. Yeah. And I think on that note, Terry, my friend, we will, on that high note, endorsed yeah. by, <laughs> by none other than a relation of the great Mr. Karloff. Um, yeah. I would like to say thank you so much for taking it's been so fantastic. much time. It's been wonderful talking to you. Um, yeah. We'll make sure that we've got links, uh, that we'll get this episode out as soon as we as soon as possible, humanly possible. Absolutely. Um, yeah. We will make sure all your links, everything are in the notes. So, Terry, one small one, one more for the road. Let the good people where they know they can find you. They can find me on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. Just if you type in "bloody students," you'll find us. Um, it's Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook. Um, and uh, before we do go, um, don't forget, Hugh. Uh, I do expect you to see you on location or on set when I'm filming "bloody students" because I can, I can, I want to throw you in as a as an extra if possible. Uh, maybe a small part if we can find a line for you to say. Um, <laughs> we're almost fully cast, but there there are a, a number of people in the background in in the museum and and other students that are seen around. So it'd be nice to get some familiar faces in the in the film there well, that you say only the time, we will know. You say yeah. the time, you say the place, and I shall be there, my friends. No problem. <laughs> Terry, it's been an absolute pleasure, and you have a open invitation to come back onto the Undead Wookiee at any time. And, I would, I would uh, love to come back in in a you know maybe a couple of months time and and tell you where we are. Absolutely, and we'll do a you know and perhaps we'll even do a deep dive on one of sure. your on one of your favorites. How about okay. that? Okay, 
So That'd be awesome. Thank you so much for being on. You take care, my friend. Cheers, Hugh. Okay, once again, I would like to say a massive thank you for Terry for being on. Um, I hope that I've been able to smooth out some of the little blips in the middle there. The uh, the old internet gremlins were right up against us. But what a what a brilliant conversation! It was just that was great. I absolutely loved every minute of that. Don't forget to get over to Kickstarter to help support um, bloody students. Not only are you helping. Uh, independent filmmakers you are also taking you you're being an active member of the horror community so don't forget you can find bloody students over a kickstarter but also um you can make donations via paypal make sure you check out the show notes uh for all the informations uh information information and links and make sure you you support Okay, up next we have got What the Wookie Watched. And on this one, we are only looking at one because we're going to spend a little bit longer than usual on What the Wookie Watched because we are talking about... We've waited a fair amount of time before covering this one. The reason why I've waited a bit of time is because I wanted a little bit of the hoo-ha and everything else to die down around it. But we are talking Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. From 2003, let's check out the trailer. You know, you're the first person I've ever shown this place to. And why am I so special? Because soon, we'll be Christopher and Mary Robin. We should be close now. We're not going to find them. We will. Pooh, Piglet, Eeyore. We were friends for many years, and they're out there. Christopher, we need to leave. Now. I really need to find out what's happened here, okay? This place is kind of cold. And did you see how it's a pool? to go. There's... Oh. Laura's dead. There's someone else outside. What was that? We used to be friends. Why are you doing this, please? I would have never left that swear. I swear. Okay, that was the trailer for Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. This was directed and written by Reese Frake Waterfield. It stars Nikolai Leon as Christopher Robin, Maria Taylor as Maria, and Natasha Rose Mills as Jessica, and Amber Doig Thorne as Alice. Now, some of you will obviously remember Amber. She's been a guest on the show, but also she was the star of the short version of School Hall Slaughter. Now, uh, this also stars Danielle Rowland as Zoe, Natasha Tassini 
as Lara. Now, I'm sorry if I got that one wrong. Uh, the last name, because, you know, my track record of last names is not great. Uh, Paula uh, Cozzi, uh, Coys, uh as Mary and May Kelly as Tina. Daniel Scott as Charlene. This, uh, obviously, when it came out... Um, almost melted the manifold of uh, the internet because people said, what a horror version of Winnie the Pooh. How could, you know, there was the, oh my goodness, you're ruining people's childhood brigade. And there was also the, oh my God, a murderous Winnie the Pooh. Now, this has come about due to the, um, essentially, the character of Winnie the Pooh and uh, Piglet and Eeyore and I think Owl as well. I think they kind of it entered into the public domain. Um, obviously, the images of the Disney characters haven't, but the A.A. Milne uh, novel of Winnie the Pooh is now in the public domain, and and, and therefore that's how this one came about. Um, this is um, this is really interesting because essentially the story behind this one is following Christopher Robin growing up. And moving on, Winnie, uh, Winnie the Pooh and Piglet and the rest of the gang are kind of left to fend for themselves. So they um, resort to cannibalism. Of course you do, to feed yourself. Um, and much hilarity ensues. No, um, this is a really, really interesting idea. It's a really, really good concept. Is this a perfect film? Absolutely not. Um, however, there is a lot to admire in you. I think some of the reviews, particularly on IMDb, are um, really unfair. Um, that's not to say that, like I said, it's perfect. It's far from it. Um, the opening animated sequences in this are fantastic and um, really set the scene. I was... I They sort of... Um, the at first I thought the actual um, voice actor um, who uh, it sounds sounds a lot like has a touch of Malcolm McDowell about him. Um, it was Toby Wynn Davis who um, narrated that, and the animation is brilliant, and it sets up it sets up the story just it perfectly. It, it it does it really really well. The um, other major strength within this is the cinematography. Um, the one of the things that sort of um, struck me uh, with this, it was uh, it was the cinematographer in this was a guy called uh, Vince Knight. Now he has done um, he's done quite a bit. He's, you know, um, I think he did um, a um, an action film called Renegades from two thousand and twenty two. Um, he did Wolf Manor. Um, he's also done some producing. You know. Th- th- the guy, he's clearly very talented. Now, one of the things that I was what really struck me about this was some of the lighting choices. I thought this was lit very, very well. Um, I thought, um, and there are some really, really striking images in this. Um, and it's very interesting to look at, particularly given that this is not, you know, this is a small budget indie horror. Um, some of the kills are you know, are very, very interesting. Um, it keeps it ticking along. I think some of the issues with the film kind of... kind of... I think it comes a little bit unstuck from the point of view of this. 
the concept is 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 such an interesting one okay and it's that idea you know some people will go oh winnie the pooh was a killer bear fantastic other people will go winnie the pooh was a killer bear oh really and it kind of falls between that idea of high camp wink wink nudge nudge and very very straight faced slasher now if the, this Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey plays it very very straight very very straight and this is um, it's bloody it is quite visceral the kills are particularly you know are particularly gory um, you know somebody gets their head run over um, with a car we get some death by sledgehammer um you know Pooh is incredibly brutal um in his deaths that being said he i think you know the because it is so straight it's sort of the fun element that could have been there has been taken out which at times slows proceedings down um also a few of the lines in terms of dialogue and those kind of things they they're a little bit clunky um and some of the car- and choices some of the characters make um you, you it's kind of asking the audience to just sort of like switch his brain off and i know i'm talking about a winnie the pooh horror f- film here but there are times where it's asking the audience to sort of give it a bit of leeway. If this was a campier version with a little, like I said, with a bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge towards the camera, I think you could probably get away with this. This has more in common with um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, the remake, the Platinum Dudes remake, and the Hills of Eyes remake at times. Um, there is that level of visceral brutality to it. And that's that's fine. That's absolutely fine. And it does work at times, and then at other times it doesn't quite work. The creature design of Pooh and Piglet is a bit hit and miss. Um, there is something deeply sinister about them, but I don't feel like it works all of the time. Um, also, I think with it running at, I think it's 80, 85 or 83 minutes, we don't get to spend an awful lot of time knowing the characters. We are flat out from from the beginning. And I think if we could, could have spent a little bit more time with some of the characters, that may have helped further down the line. There are some characters who are just introduced to be killed. Um, and yeah, that happens in pretty much every single slasher since the dawn of the slasher. But it is... we you know I, There is very, very little time to breathe with any of these characters. Um, that being said, I think, you know, Amber's performance in this is actually very good. Um, she, um, you know, her scene with Piglet, um, is, I won't go into too many spoilers because obviously this is out and lots of people still haven't seen it yet, but it's a great one. Um, and she does deliver the goods in this. Um, uh, Maria Taylor is excellent as Maria, but there are other characters in here who are very, very much... Um, underdeveloped at times. Um, Nikolai uh, Leon as Christopher Robin uh, does 
suffer for <laughs> considerably at the hands of his former friends. Um, there is one particular scene where he is being flailed um, with uh, what used to be Eeyore's tail. Now, that particular scene is a combination of fuck me, he's using Eeyore's tail and he is being whipped and shredded a la Passion of the Christ. And you think, oh, that's a bit painful. Um, and to be fair, Nicolas, uh, Nicolas' performance in this is he is he is suffering for his, he is really, you know, he's going through it. But equally, he's being flailed by Eeyore's tail. Uh, <laughs> um, and that's not to say that it's, you know, we should be sort of, to, you know, it completely in the realms of like, I don't know, the 1960s Batman. But this film does have that level of camp to it. But because it is played so straight, there are moments in this where it does become unintentionally funny. Um, I really enjoyed this one. Um, I really did. And it is definitely worth your time and your money because after all, um, this is a Winnie the Pooh horror movie. I, mean, I don't think we're going to see many others um, or many other things like it. Um, who knows? I know that there's talk of a sequel and, and I really, really hope so because this has a lot of potential. I love the colorization in this film. Um, I thought it was shot incredibly well. This has got some really, really good standout moments in it. Um, but it's not perfect. Um, I think the, it ends quite abruptly. Um, and there are some elements that don't quite work. Um, that being said, I think considering budget um, and all those other kind of things, I think this does, you know, the, it's well worth your time. Um, I'd give this a, you know, a, a five and a half out of ten. Um, it's available to rent, I believe, on Amazon. Um, so it's, you know, so it's, so it's definitely worth your time checking this one out. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, our time draws to an end. And as always, I'd like to thank Terry for being on the show. And don't forget, get over to Kickstarter to check out Bloody Students. And you can also find him on uh, Facebook, on Instagram, just type on uh, TikTok even, just type in Bloody Students. And you he will pop up. He will be there. Um, so get out there and help support the indie, com indie filmmaking community and the horror community. Um, so... All that is left for me to say in the immortal words of Count Duckula. Good night out there, whatever you are.